The Founding Fathers, American Revolution, Our Constitution, Our History, America. Thanks so much for tuning in as we discuss the people, places, events, and battles that turned 13 separate colonies into the greatest nation on earth, the United States. Welcome back, patriots. I'm your host, Ron Kern, and I am so glad that you're here. I want to thank you for allowing me to share my passion for the revolution and our country's history with you. And thanks for thanks for checking this episode out. Hey, a big shout out to Brad, uh, who became a monthly show sponsor. And I haven't had a chance to reach out to him personally, or else I would give his full name. So if you are listening, Brad, shoot me an email so I can uh, talk with you and thank you personally. If you are like Brad and you want to support the show, you have many easy ways to do so. One, you can sponsor the show monthly like Brad did, and you can choose a, an amount as low as 99 cents a month or even up to $10 a month. So easy ways to, to help support the show. You can also give a one-time donation by scanning the QR code, which takes you to Venmo, and you can also support the companies and services that you hear during the ads in this show. Lastly, you can support the show by giving it a review, which costs absolutely nothing but maybe a minute of your time. And the more reviews that the show receives, the easier it is for people to find. So it's a real benefit uh, for the show to get your review. The monthly sponsorship and QR code links are located at the bottom of the main page on my website, which is patriotpowerpodcast.com. You can do a review within the platform that you are listening to this podcast on. Okay, enough of that, but I did want to recognize Brad, who became a monthly show sponsor, and it's really appreciated. You know, a lot of time and energy goes into every single episode, and donations like this helps defray some of the costs and time involved so that my podcast can be kept free and non-subscription based. Our last episode, number 28, I covered Bunker Hill, Joseph Warren, Fort Ticonderoga, a new colonial army was formed, and the Olive Branch Petition. I listed quite a few interesting facts about all of these topics and hope that you learned a lot and enjoyed my last episode. In this episode, I'm going to talk about a march that is really hard to believe is true, also going to discuss a battle, and about the man at the helm and the star of it all, Benedict Arnold. I'm going to cover the march to Quebec, as after reading two comprehensive books on the topic and an immense amount of research, I just found it remarkable. It's considered even today as one of the greatest military marches in history. Again, thanks for your patience on me getting this episode out, and I did all that I could to make it an amazing one that was hopefully worth the wait. This horrifically difficult march truly was incredible, and after reading the diaries of many of the men on the march, I'm actually quite surprised that anyone survived it. Had the battle ended differently, the Quebec province could have easily become a 14th colony. And I'm not exaggerating. It was that close. So can you picture Quebec, Canada being part of the United States right now? 
The march was beyond difficult, and the battle was a brutal one for every person involved. But to ensure we understand how it all went down, we need to start at the beginning. Our last episode ended in June of 1775 with the Battle of Bunker Hill. Now the march to Quebec started September 13th and ended on December 13th, 1775. Then the Battle of Quebec took place on December 31st, 18 days later. This episode isn't too far off of these dates, 248 years ago. This happens a lot with my podcast, but I never really plan it out. It just seems to happen, which is kind of cool. What took place on a certain day is reserved for my video series, The Patriot Power Freedom Files, which is available on my website, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. Nonetheless, what prompted this march? Who suggested it? And then who created the plans for it? What was the march like? What was the battle like? And how did it end? These questions and much more will be answered in this episode. And to ensure it isn't a four-hour episode, let's get started. After the American Revolutionary War started in April 1775, Lexington and Concord, which I covered back in episode number 23, the Continental Congress was concerned that the British would launch an invasion from the north out of Canada. During the Siege of Boston, which I covered in episode number 28, Congress organized the militia forces surrounding the city in the Continental Army and elected George Washington as Commander-in-Chief, which was also discussed in episode number 28. On June 27, 1775, Congress authorized General Philip Schuyler to assemble an army and occupy Fort Ticonderoga. Schuyler received his instructions from the Continental Congress on June 30th, which explicitly told him that he could only move into Canada if it was not, quote, disagreeable to the Canadians. I'm not sure how he was supposed to determine that, uh, but it sure sounded uh, politically correct, I think. General Schuyler and General Richard Montgomery were now in charge of these goals, and that was taking Montreal and then taking the city of Quebec. The plan was having Schuyler and Montgomery take the path of Lake Champlain and then the St. Lawrence River. Benedict Arnold convinced George Washington to let him also be involved, and George Washington liked Benedict Arnold quite a bit, actually, and Arnold was a guy that if you spent 10 minutes with him, you either loved him or despised and hated him. In reading a lot about Arnold, there wasn't too much gray area with him, I think. Um, I personally probably would have liked him. Benedict Arnold did far less in his treason than several others, and he was made an example out of, but that's for a whole nother show, one for sure that I have on the books to cover. Nonetheless, Washington promoted Arnold to colonel and assigned 1,100 men under his command. Washington did wait, however, for Schuyler's approval before commencement, which is why they started later than they wanted to, which was September. Schuyler had met Arnold a couple months prior, and he liked him, so he supported Benedict Arnold's involvement. Here is where the story makes sense, but in hindsight, proved disastrous. Arnold's path would take him and his men into land that had been rarely traveled. Rivers, streams, 
mountains, and difficult terrain would be encountered. He and his men would walk the southeast portion of what is now Maine, then north through almost the middle of the state, and then through Canada and eventually reaching Quebec. Keep in mind, there weren't any roads, paths, or a walkway. And if you think Maine is densely filled with trees now, think about what it was like back then. Uncut, untraveled, and much about the area was completely unknown other than they would have Native Americans to contend with along their path. George Washington must have been pretty excited, but also maybe a little bit nervous about this because this was the first military expedition in the history of what would become the United States. Washington drafted an address to the inhabitants of Canada, which Benedict Arnold was gonna carry with him during his journey. In the address, Washington says, quote, we have taken up arms in defense of our liberty, our property, our wives, and our children. We are determined to preserve them or die. Early September, with all of the planning complete, it was about time to commence. Schuyler had fallen ill and it seemed to be getting worse. And at the start of this campaign, he wasn't doing well at all. Meanwhile, Washington was recruiting men for a secret mission under Benedict Arnold. He was very specific, asking for three companies of riflemen and 670 privates. Washington said that these volunteers should be, quote, active woodsmen and well acquainted with the bateaus. Bateaus are flat bottom boats that were used commonly back then to transport commerce items up and down the rivers. They are shallow boats and these would be used to carry supplies such as food, equipment, tents, guns, powder, and more. These type of items are oftentimes referred to as provisions. Also, bateau in French simply means boat. Daniel Morgan was going to be uh, in this march, and Benedict Arnold would later write, quote, A young gentleman of much life and activity with great spirit and resolution. This 19-year-old that he was talking about, his name, Aaron Burr. Burr would fall one single vote short of becoming President of the United States. He would also later kill Alexander Hamilton in a duel, committing murder as the Vice President, and commit treason years after the war. Most know him because of the duel, but he was far worse later on, which I'm going to go into more detail in another show. For now, at this place and time, however, he was ready to go. He was brave and joined hundreds of men to fight for independence and freedom from England. The starting point was getting his men to Fort Western, near Augusta, Maine. I have a photo of this fort that was taken in 1936, along with a recent picture, and it's pretty cool to see, so check out the show notes for it, as well as a lot more photos, videos, and links, all compiled for you about today's topic. So from Fort Western, they were going to go up the Kennebec River, and based on the maps that Arnold had, which weren't accurate, as again, this area was rarely traveled or documented, Arnold estimated it would take about 20 days to reach Quebec. Based on the map he had, he thought it was roughly 180 miles to Quebec from Fort Western. 
How inaccurate was the map he used? Well, in reality, it was not 180 miles to Quebec. It was 350 miles. For comparison, if you were in a car on a paved straight road going 50 miles an hour, it would take you seven hours to cover that distance. Arnold and his 1,100 or so men had no cars, no roads, no paths, and clearly they didn't even have an accurate map. They would have to find food, shelter, stay out of the weather, which by the way was going to get quite brutal, remain healthy, and fight off Native Americans, to name just a few of the many issues along their way. Why was the map not accurate? Well, from what I could find, the maps that Arnold had were created during the French and Indian War, which I covered back in Episode 3, so lots had changed, but additionally, it wasn't uncommon for maps after a war to be changed, altered, or purposely made inaccurate to ensure that future enemies could not use them. And likely, the map that Arnold used was one of these altered maps. Now, Arnold actually hired a surveyor and a map maker to ensure what he was looking at was accurate and valid. Unfortunately, the man that he hired was a loyalist who screwed up the maps with distances, obstacles, and anything else he could do to cause issues for Arnold. This is a great foreshadowing of how things would go during this expedition and march to Quebec. As the army approached Fort Western, Arnold met with a guy named Reuben Colburn. Colburn was the man hired to make 200 bateaus for this trip. He's going to need a lot of boats, so Colburn was hired to do the making of them. Now, knowing that using good, dry, and aged wood would cost him way more uh, to do, cutting into his profits, Colburn chose to use inferior pine wood instead. And when pine gets wet, it shrinks. The boats were also smaller in size than what was ordered, so smaller boats that would shrink in a few days, causing holes and then sinking, continued the warning signs of what was going to be dealt with on the march. It didn't take too much time in the water to see that most of these 200 boats would have to be repaired, usually with pitch, mud, or anything else that would help stop a leak. Due to this, Arnold required Colburn to come with him and his army on the march. While Arnold and some men were getting boats moved upriver, what were the rest of the troops doing? Well, mix boredom, a new place, and alcohol together, and what do you get? Yeah, nothing good. Uh, many of them were getting into fights. Some actually broke into loyalist homes. Loyalist is someone who supported England. They would steal items, drink, and eat everything in their houses. In order to stop all of this chaos, Arnold needed to get out of this area quick. So, he ordered the army and they started moving up the Kennebec River. Arnold was able to get a canoe for him personally, which was far faster than a bateau, so he could travel back and forth to the front and the rear of his army. He also was able to hire some Indians to serve and help as guides, since likely these Abenaki Indians were the only ones that actually knew the area and actual layout of the land, rivers, and mountains. 
in just over a week of travel, they moved a whopping 50 miles. Did you hear my sarcasm? So in a week's time, they went 50 miles. To say the trip was moving along slow is quite an understatement. Cold rain, having to carry the boats on the shoreline due to them not floating, and pure exhaustion reached every single person. Far more important, and worse, was that food and gunpowder had become wet due to the poor boats, and anything dry from that became drenched with what seemed like a non-stop rain. A vast majority of the food and provisions were thrown out. They just were unable to be used. Also, Arnold and his men had double the amount of food they thought they would need. In fact, it was supposed to cover them for 45 days. And remember, initially, Arnold thought it was going to take just 20 days. Now, things were getting dire. Finally, they reached what is called the Great Carrying Place. If you know anything about today's topic, the march to Quebec, you have likely heard of it. If not, it's pretty easy to discern that whatever you had at the time, it was going to need to be carried for 15 miles. Keep in mind that these boats weighed about 400 pounds and all the provisions had to be unloaded, boats carried 15 miles or so, and then the provisions carried the same distance and then put and loaded back into the boat. This was not only difficult, it was very physically demanding and a pretty remarkable task. How in the world they accomplished just this part is dumbfounding. Arnold had a small hut built to care for all of the sick, injured, and malnourished men during this time. Sadly, many men entered alive but could not overcome their injury or sickness, and many of them died. They forged ahead, though, now floating down the river, which is much easier than going against the current. However, remember when I said that the rain was relentless? It rained so much that the river actually raised a foot in one single day. That is an amazing amount of rain. And not only did they have to walk and carry and go through the weather, now this river is now a foot higher, which made it overflow, drenching the shore, oftentimes where they made camp, and any clean drinking water was filled with mud and organisms that made many more very sick, causing vomiting, diarrhea, and other things that you don't want when you're in the middle of a march through the wilderness. Actually, I suppose you don't want those at any time, but being in the middle of nowhere with no shelter, hardly any food, very few provisions and everything you have is drenched and wet and you're sick at the same time. I just, I just can't imagine it. But that is the situation that they found themselves in. Throughout the entire march, they often had to wade up to their waist or even their neck, pushing and pulling their boats against the tide. They used long poles, called setting poles and eventually oars, to assist with that. We can't forget the many rocks that they encountered in the water, too. It, it, was, it was just not easy. Um, if you can picture everything I've discussed, it, it's just difficult everywhere you turn. There was a colonel named Roger Enos, and he added to the pain and misery and caused a lot of issue and eventual harm to everyone. 
Enos was in charge of covering the rear of the army. He decided that the march wasn't, quote, doable. So he took a third of the men and much of the food that was usable with him. And he headed back to Massachusetts. This actually was treason, mutiny, and a gigantic blow to the brave and courageous men that were willing to press forward. Initially, I must uh, admit, I was pretty upset with Enos. Like, how cowardly could you be? And I wasn't happy that he left the army hanging. And had he just left, that's one thing. But he took 33% of the army and a ton of the food. That's just, that's just not right. And he would later say in a court-martial that he did it to save his men from certain death. He was actually absolved from any wrongdoing in the court-martial and eventually went back home to Connecticut. I dug a little bit and found the official document that reads, Lieutenant Colonel Enos tried at a late general court-martial whereof Brigadier General Sullivan was president for, quote, leaving his commanding officer without permission or orders and returning to Cambridge. The court, after mature consideration of the evidence, are unanimously of this opinion that the prisoner was by absolute necessity obliged to return with his division and do therefore acquit him with honor. The general orders Lieutenant Colonel Enos to be forthwith released from his arrest. Although many men provided statements that would support Enos and his decision, once he got home, he really couldn't shake the looks and calls of traitor from many of the uh, residents, so he packed up and he moved, to, he moved to Vermont. Previous to this expedition in 1759, Enos fought in the French and Indian War and during it was promoted to captain under Israel Putnam. Another amazing man yet to be discussed, but I will cover Israel Putnam in a future show. Also, Enos patrolled the streets during the Siege of Boston, and he also fought in the Battle of Bunker Hill. So clearly, he wasn't afraid, and he did stand firm on the side of the colonists. It just makes me wonder what prompted him specifically to abandon the march as they were over halfway through the march. Was there one thing that caused him to finally say, you know what, enough's enough. We can only now speculate, but once I got over my disgust with his leaving, I tried to look at it from his side. His men, totaling 300, were on the brink of death, starving. Boats could barely be called that, as only a few actually floated. The weather was brutal, and it was only September, so Mother Nature was not going to get any nicer. Was he really trying to protect himself and men from what he felt was certain death? Again, we can only speculate, and I do see his side as those were the reasons that he gave in the court-martial. Then again, 600 men likely felt the same way that he did, but they pushed through the pain, misery, and unknown future, and eventually made it to Quebec. I'll add a question on the podcast and on what you think of Roger Eno, so take a minute and answer it as I would love to know your position. I have a few links and a drawing of Enos in this episode's show notes, so if you want to learn more about him, check the show notes out. It was a pretty big deal during this march. As big of an issue Enos leaving with a lot of the food and his men, um, as big of a deal as that was, 
there would be ample more big deals that the remaining army would have to contend with. Are you a hunter? Do you like to fish, camp, or hike? One common obstacle in doing these activities is transporting and storing food. Well, Back 40 Farms can help you with this. Their organic freeze-dried food is small and super lightweight, making it a snack to have quality, healthy, and delicious food while you are enjoying the outdoors. With our freeze-dried organic chicken eggs, you can put the equivalent of 48 eggs in your backpack and would hardly notice they were there. Small, lightweight, and delicious, they have become super popular for those on the go and being so high in protein, they are perfect for these outdoor activities or for those wanting to increase their emergency food supply. Their eggs have been featured on NPR, The Today Show, and other media outlets, with a wide variety of veggies, soup mixes, fruit, eggs, and more to choose from. Visit their online country store at www.bffidaho.com and have your order in a couple of days. With your purchase, you are getting incredible food that can last decades, and you are supporting a small farm that is veteran-owned and family-run. A link to their website and store is located in the show notes, as well as this podcast description. Use coupon code PATRIOT, all caps, to save 15% off your next order. Many, many more difficulties were faced by the Army on their march, and I'm not going to go into too many more details other than try and picture yourself in this situation. It's hard to do, but really try, and it might put a little perspective in it. You are super cold. You're hungry, almost past the point of hungry and close to starvation. You're likely sick. You're scared. You're tired. You're away from home. You're physically and mentally exhausted. And then you're tossed outside into the coldest and worst weather conditions possible. That is what each remaining person was experiencing. Captain William Humphrey kept a journal and thought I'd read a few of his entries to give you the actual voice of what someone who was there during this amazing trek was thinking and he put those words and thoughts on paper. I also have a link to his entire journal in the show notes, which is quite fascinating to read. An early entry says, quote, left Prospect Hill Fort in order to join the party going on a secret expedition under the command of Colonel Benedict Arnold consisting of two battalions, one commander, Lieutenant Colonel Enos, and the other by Lieutenant Colonel Green. On September 30th, he wrote, quote, This day proceeded towards the aforesaid falls through very rapid water. Here is the second carrying place. We found that the course of the river differed from the draft that we had seen. I carried my bateau across the island and encamped on the mainland on the west side of the river. There is a new mill erected and the worst constructed I ever saw. Last night it froze so hard as to freeze our wet clothes and the ice was as thick as window glass on the water that stood in the pail. The carrying is difficult because the land is high. We had to carry our boats, provisions, and baggage. On November 2nd, his entry reads, Quote, This day we proceeded on our way through much fatigue, 16 miles. It is an astonishing thing to see almost every man without any sustenance but cold water. This, you must think, is weakening rather than strengthening. Here a boy returned and tells us that there were provisions within three miles of us. 
I saw several when they came to see the provision shed tears. They were so much overjoyed at the sight of relief. If you've listened to my show, you know I live on a farm and I walk anywhere between 8 and 12 miles a day. I tried to imagine going 16 miles, carrying everything, up hills, through trees, in a river, cold. It, it must have been a different breed of men back then, or perhaps the cause that they were fighting for was worth every ounce of everything that they had. I never get complacent when putting myself in someone else's shoes or situation back then, and when doing so in this march to Quebec, it's truly unbelievable. I wonder if there are, are people out there today that could do what they did. I'm sure there are, but I would wager it's an exceptionally small percentage. Finally, near Halloween, the Canadian border had been reached. Ta-da! Hallelujah! Now, you might think this is where the misery finally ends and that these haggard, tired, and hungry men can finally get some food and shelter, rest up, get healthy again before approaching Quebec. Well, that sadly is opposite of what actually happened. All of the food was gone as they crossed the border. Some actually ate a dog that had been on the journey with them. From previous kills, they took out a moose, deer, and even beaver hides, and they boiled them, drinking the boiled water, thinking at least they're getting something, anything, in their stomachs. Some of them also ate candle wax. They were just that hungry. They were desperate, and they needed help. All the men were told by Arnold that if they fell or collapsed or quit, the army could do nothing further for them and that they would be left where they dropped. One of those men did collapse and his wife was with him until the end. His wife, Jemima Warner, actually traveled with him on this journey and decided to join him because she was concerned about his health. Abner Stocking's journal, a man on the march, wrote, quote, His affectionate wife tarried by him until he died while the rest of the company proceeded on their way. Having no implements with which she could bury him, she covered him with leaves and took his gun and left him with a heavy heart. This caring woman dedicated to her husband returned to his side alone while the army marched on. Once he had died, she reached the army after traveling 20 miles catching up with us. Her strength of body and character must have inspired the men to greater heights. You might be thinking, what? There was women on this march? Uh, in fact, there were two women that were with the army going through everything that I've described, and I'll talk more about them at the end of the show in the section called Lesser Known Fun or Interesting Facts segment. All right, getting back to the border. On or near November 3rd, most of the army were now standing in Canada. A few days later, they came across several cows, of which they butchered immediately, and all finally had a protein-rich meal. The start, at least, of regaining some of their energy and getting some nutrition in them. Benedict Arnold paid the owner for the cows, and as with most everything purchased, he did so with his own money. With less than half of what Arnold started out with, he and 600 soldiers were still cold, but at least they weren't hungry anymore. They made their way into a small French town of which the residents were rather shocked at what they saw. 
dirty, tired, unkept, unshaven, many not wearing clothing to match the weather. It was unimaginable to them. The town called Sardigan housed, fed, and helped them any way that they could. I think this town was certainly a godsend and uh, thankfully very supportive of these troops and they really helped them out a lot and it couldn't have come any later I don't think so way to go Sardigan. As the army ate, drank, and rested one of them was still hard at work. That man as you may have already guessed was Benedict Arnold. He was poring over his desk quill and ink nearby writing down plans, creating diversions, marking routes, and preparing everything that is required to lead 600 men into a siege and eventual battle. Did Benedict Arnold ever sleep? It's like so absurd sometimes when you read his writings or George Washington, John Adams, and many others. Like when did they ever sleep? They accomplished more than 50 people combined could do, and it's just something it's hard to explain with any accuracy. It, they were just incredible, um, efficient, effective, intelligent men back then. Our founding fathers and many others were just uh, quite inspiring. Now, at about the same time, the city of Montreal in Canada had easily been taken by Montgomery. Fort Western was the starting point for Arnold and his army, and Fort Ticonderoga was the starting point for General Montgomery and Schuyler. However, Schuyler had to resign and give full command to General Montgomery because of his illness. I could not find the specific illness, but my research leans to it being yellow fever. Whatever the illness was, Schuyler lived until 1804 at the age of 70. Here's a slight rabbit trail, but I think you should know that Schuyler served in the Continental Congress, he was a senator from New York, and most famously was Alexander Hamilton's father-in-law after he married his daughter Elizabeth. Here you can mentally insert songs from the Broadway hit musical Hamilton. Let's not forget that Schuyler provided the defenses for the Battle of Saratoga, a battle that would have been lost without Benedict Arnold, and that same battle gave France the confidence to join the war as an ally to America. Lastly, it was Schuyler that Congress authorized on June 27, 1775, that tasked him to assemble an army to take to Quebec City. So although his sickness kept him out of the march to Montreal and all future happenings in Canada, he was an important part of many important events. Montgomery was now the man in charge of the western portion of the assault, and in hindsight, I'm sure Schuyler is thankful he was too sick to continue, as shortly you're going to find out what happened to Montgomery. What set out to be a 20-day march turned into a total of 45 grueling days in an unmapped, unfriendly, and very unforgiving wilderness filled with sickness, horrific weather, starvation, death, and mutiny. Overcoming all of it, finally, on November 8th, Arnold and his troops arrived at the bluffs of Quebec City. They had finally reached their destination. Arnold didn't waste any time because on November 14th, just six days after reaching the bluffs, he sent an ultimatum to everyone living inside the city of Quebec. In short, the message was, surrender, or uh, we're going to we're going to fight. 
What he actually wrote and sent into the city was, quote, I am ordered by His Excellency General Washington to take possession of the town of Quebec. I do therefore, in the name of the United Colonies, demand immediate surrender of the town, fortifications, and city of Quebec to the forces of the United Colonies under my command. In short, the inhabitants in Quebec City knew that Arnold and his army were weak and felt that they could defend their city if it eventually came to that. And, by the way, it's going to come to that. Arnold set up his men strategically and started a siege of Quebec. Now, remember, a siege is basically shutting off anything coming in or going out of a city, fort, or area. However, Arnold and his men were outside in the elements, still needing food, still short on supplies. So the siege was more of a horse and pony show, really, than an actual siege that might yield some benefit. So the guy that was inside Quebec City, the man in charge of that town, was Guy Carleton. Sir Guy Carleton. And he was more of a defensive-minded guy, taking the road less traveled, typically. And this is part why Montgomery took Montreal so easily. Carleton just kept retreating and retreating, finally making his way back to Quebec City in November. In fact, it was yesterday's date in 1775 that Montreal was taken. That's pretty cool. On December 2nd, General Montgomery arrived from Montreal with supplies, provisions, cannons, and most importantly, 500 more soldiers. Combined, Montgomery and Arnold now had 1,100 men to fight against Carleton and take Quebec City. I think it's interesting that after the deaths, desertions, and mutiny of Roger Enos, that once the two armies merged, they had the same number of men that Arnold started out with initially. So how many did Quebec City and Guy Carleton have to fight against them? The answer is about 700 more, with an army of around 1,800. Sir Guy Carleton had prompted reinforcements to come to Quebec City, and had Arnold and Montgomery arrived just three days earlier, it is likely that they could have taken the city without too much trouble. Instead, Carleton had 1,800 men ready to defend the city of Quebec, and Carleton also knew that many, well, or most, of the colonial army's enlistments were going to expire on December 31st. And that means any of them could just put their stuff down and stop what they're doing and leave and go home on January 1st without any issues or uh, discipline. And enlistments expiring was a constant issue throughout the entire eight-year war. So. Carleton really was not concerned with a long siege at all. So visually, here's where we are. Carleton and his 1,800 men are ready to fight. The city of Quebec was surrounded by a wall and fortifications, so it's not like a typical city or neighborhood where you could just see the city and who and what was going on inside. Think of Game of Thrones and the walls they had around palaces and fortresses. It was it's pretty similar to that. In fact, many of the original walls surrounding Quebec still exist. And I'd guess that they are about 20 to 30 feet high. So it wasn't just a fence to hop over. They were, and still are, quite impressive considering that these walls were built in 1609. 
Montgomery and Arnold together started a siege set up to the west of Quebec City. The colonial army had roughly 1,100 soldiers, and thanks to Montgomery's arrival, they finally had some food and provisions and even a few artillery pieces. The siege, however, was not working, and December 31st was quickly approaching, so they needed to make a decision and they needed to act fast. The Battle of Quebec is about to start. On December 9th, Montgomery and Arnold ordered the artillery pieces to bombard Quebec. They wanted to show force and resolve to convince Sir Carleton to surrender. Unfortunately, the cannons were just too small and they didn't even literally make a dent in the city walls. They were loud and it was very authoritative, but surrender never came and their hopes were not accomplished. It didn't help that Carleton and the city of Quebec had four times the number of cannons as the colonial army had, and they were shooting back at them. Keep in mind that they were above the colonial army shooting down at them, and a higher position is always a better one when in battle. This back and forth went on for weeks, and by December 24th, Christmas Eve's, cannons were silent from the colonial army. The choices were slim, and they weren't good choices to choose from either. They could retreat and come back with more reinforcements, or they could gamble and move into the city and attack it. Montgomery voiced that his men had come too far and gone through too much to turn back now. And of course, Arnold, he always appeared ready and willing for a fight, no matter what the circumstances. With that being said, Arnold truly was a military genius and hands down the best on-field soldier during the Revolutionary War, and that includes the British side as well. In fact, many British generals said after the war that nobody compared to Arnold when it came to battles or bravery, and after all of my very intensive study of Arnold, I absolutely wholeheartedly agree. On December 26, 1775, General Richard Montgomery held a council of war with his top officers on what to do. A council of war happens a lot during the Revolutionary War, and George Washington was an expert at them. Basically, it is a time for all higher-ups to voice their opinion and position, but ultimately, the decision would be made by the general, in this case, Montgomery. Remember, Arnold was just a colonel at this time, uh, and so Montgomery outranked Arnold. Regarding councils of war, Washington was an expert, as I said before, at listening and taking opinions and positions of everyone, compiling all of that shared data, and then making what he felt was the best decision possible. He didn't choose the most popular vote or what most people wanted, but he did listen to everybody's point of view and their input, and he would then take all of that and make a decision that made the best sense based on everybody's input. During this council of war, Arnold of course voiced very strongly that an assault should take place and must be tried even though the chances of success were slim. So he even thought that we got to try even though eh, it's probably not going to uh, end in our favor. Everybody had traveled too far 
and overcame way too much to turn back now. And taking this city was just too important and they could not fathom heading back to the colonies empty-handed, so to speak. An effort had to be made. It was decided then that they would attack the city. Montgomery was going to attack what was called the Lower Town from the south, while Arnold and his men would attack from the north, cutting off the upper and lower town. And this may be difficult to picture in your mind, so I have a map, along with many other links and videos of value, in this episode's show notes that will really help you see and understand it visually. It has uh, you know, a dotted red line, and so you can see where Arnold was going, you can see where Montgomery and his men were going, so it really helps paint a better picture. But as most of you know, I do provide links and videos, maps, paintings, interactive websites, and I even recommend books on each show's topic. If you ever want to dive deep or learn more and aren't taking advantage of the show notes, you are really missing out of what I have been told are tremendous resources. It takes a long time to put just the show notes together for each episode, so I'm hopeful that you'll take a look at them. Prior to the attack, and what I think most would think very uncharacteristically, Benedict Arnold declared that anyone not wanting to participate in the battle didn't have to, and they could leave without punishment. It's recorded that only a handful of men took him up on the offer, one having a, quote, fit of cannon fever, which I think today would be considered severe PTSD. As a side note, there are countless examples and times where Arnold went above and beyond for men under his command. Truly a remarkable military tactician and compassionate and caring to his men. The attack took place in the early morning hours on December 31st, likely due to the enlistments expiring the next day and as, quote, luck would have it, a massive snowstorm took place. Both Arnold and Montgomery would have to lead their men along their respective paths in a brutal winter blizzard. General Montgomery led the first attack on the fortified city of Quebec by moving around the city walls and into the coastal shore areas of the St. Lawrence River. Along the coastal areas, there were fewer British defenses, leading Montgomery to believe that it would be an easier access point into the city. And although this blizzard had begun the night prior, it was still snowing just like it had started. And the Patriots moved forward, operating with significantly decreased visibility. Some of the men who recorded the attack later said that the wind was so cold and brutal that their hands froze and snow was not falling, snow was actually traveling sideways. One rifleman said, quote, the storm was outrageous and the cold wind extremely biting. I think it's interesting how people back then never seemed to embellish or exaggerate things. I looked at the weather, researched a lot for the actual day of the battle, read journals, and to simply say that it was biting or outrageous seems a far understatement of the reality. The weather just wasn't good. It was numbing and it made it hard, almost impossible for anybody to see, hear, or even hold their muskets. With that said, these conditions had to be dealt with by both sides. 
In order to coordinate the attack between the Patriot armies on either side of the city, Montgomery's men were tasked to shoot rockets into the air as a means of communicating to Arnold's militia that it was time to invade. However, as the attack began, disorganization and disorientation ensued, with American militia getting lost in the brutal blizzard. As Montgomery's men pushed forward toward the city, Canadian militia caught sight of the lanterns guiding the Continentals, and they opened fire. The opposing sides were in very close range at this point, and a grape shot from the Canadian fortress killed General Montgomery, along with many others following their leader. Grape shot had gone through both of his thighs, his left cheek, and then bored into his head. Grape shot is picture similar to a shotgun, except the small BB size balls in today's shotguns back then were much larger size lead balls and were shot from a cannon. The results were treacherous and at close range, as it was with Montgomery, he had no chance to survive that. There is a famous painting of this called, quite simply, The Death of General Montgomery. I, of course, have this for you to view in this episode's show notes. Montgomery died in the arms of Major Matthias Ogden. Some reports I've found say that Montgomery was dead before his body hit the ground, and, if true, it may make the famous painting not historically accurate. The painting doesn't, nor could it, show just how bad the blizzard was, but the important significance is that a general was killed, leading his men in the fight for liberty. And if you look back at other paintings, for that matter, the crossing of the Delaware, that painting isn't even remarkably close at all to what it actually looked like and what took place. But it does evoke emotion and the reality of the situation. I don't get too wrapped up in a painting, but I do understand why it was made, and it did enrage and create a stir to get those that were maybe on the fence over to support the Patriot cause. Montgomery would have the unfortunate label of being the first general killed during the American Revolution. Legend says that Aaron Burr helped in retrieving Montgomery's lifeless body from the field but I'd hate to give him any credit if that's not factual. After seeing their commander fall, some Continentals began to run and flee, while others continued forward with the attack. Despite their best intentions, these remaining devoted men from Montgomery's militia were eventually forced to retreat when they could not breach the defenses of the city. Although not visible, many soldiers had a white piece of paper in their cap with the words, liberty or death, written on it. Across the way, Arnold and his men were now inside the city walls, fighting off the weather, unable to see, and they became lost in the city because it had odd locations of homes, buildings, and other structures. It, it, it was kind of like, a, if you looked at, the, at it from the top, it was kind of like a, a rat maze. There was no rhyme or reason to many of the structures, so they essentially were lost. Amid the chaos and confusion, some noticed that Benedict Arnold was on the ground, in obvious pain, with red blood freezing as it hit the snow below his left leg. Arnold had been shot by a musket ball, shot from high on the walls, ricocheting off a stone wall, then went through his leg, 
somehow passing through the two major leg bones. It was only due to too much blood loss that Reverend Spring and another soldier helped Arnold to his feet and headed back in retreat toward a hospital. Arnold dragged his leg behind him, unable to move it on his own. Captain Daniel Morgan assumed command since both Arnold and Montgomery were no longer in the picture. But Tarleton's forces eventually took command and captured him and 400 soldiers. The end result was disastrous. Arnold was shot and seriously wounded. Montgomery had been killed and another 84 killed or wounded with over 400 taken prisoner. Estimates say that British had 19 killed or wounded. Some reports also say that British had 50 killed or wounded or total casualties. It's always a bit sketchy when you're looking at numbers of wounded, killed, missing of any battle of the revolution because one, they didn't really take accurate, super accurate, you know, accounts of everybody. And as you can imagine, both sides tried to minimize their losses. But regardless of the numbers, there was no doubt that it was a massive loss for the Americans. Even with Arnold's injury, he still encircled the walls to start another siege. Facing sub-zero temperatures, low supplies, and many troops did in fact go home as their enlistments expired, Arnold was still trying to accomplish the initial goal of taking Quebec. Arnold wrote to Congress and George Washington asking for more troops. He didn't beat around the bush either when he wrote, quote, For God's sakes, order as many men down as you possibly can spare, consistent with the safety of Montreal and all the mortars, howitzers, and shells that you can possibly bring. I hope the Honorable Continental Congress will not think of sending less than eight to 10,000 men to secure and form a lasting connection with this country. Tarleton had already resupplied the city and could handle a siege for months. Not so for Arnold and the Colonial Army. The reinforcements that Arnold asked for didn't come from Montreal, where Continental Army General Wooster was now in command. But George Washington did find and send troops to Arnold from Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and even the Green Mountain Boys came. But by the time they arrived, they were sick, weak, tattered clothes, and some wearing what you couldn't even call clothing. It was more like rags. Also during that time, 40 ships were arriving from England to reinforce and help Quebec. All of those ships included supplies, artillery, and 4,000 British troops. Although they were too late to participate in the battle that had already ended, this show of force added to the countless reasons to get out of Canada. Additionally, an outbreak of smallpox made it clear. Canada was lost, and Arnold and his men retreated to Montreal and then back to Fort Ticonderoga in May of 1776. Quebec, and Canada for that matter, was never going to be a target again for the colonial army in the future. Some of the best leaders and military men were lost during this battle by either being killed, injured, or taken prisoner. And I hope now you have a really great understanding of this incredible march 
and battle that, in my opinion, just isn't spoken about as much as it should be. Perhaps it's because it didn't take place in America or it was before the Declaration of Independence. But either way, I hope you now know more about it and that you really enjoyed this episode. Now, what Arnold did on his way back home was, I don't even know if remarkable would be the term. The Battle of Valcour Island and the events at Lake Champlain will be an upcoming episode, probably my next one, because Benedict Arnold continues to do things that just don't seem plausible or possible. We have now reached the part of the show called Lesser Known, Fun, or Interesting Facts, so here we go. Susanna Greer and Jemima Warner were wives of two men who were involved in the march to Quebec. They suffered along their husbands and army and had to deal with the same hunger, misery, and issues that the men did. Susanna was the wife of Joseph Greer, and she was described as six feet tall, large, virtuous, and a respectable woman. From another journal I found, quote, On daybreak, December 18th, there was one more American casualty. As she went to fetch water, a 24-pound British cannonball sheared off the head of Jemima Warner, who had lost her husband in the swamps. British guns managed to destroy a rebel artillery battery at St. Roque, killing a man and a woman. So, Jemima Warner was likely the first woman to die in combat for a country that still had yet to formally declare its independence. Finding diaries and journals is exciting to me as it's so real and in the moment at the time of capturing what they felt or witnessed. Caleb Haskell's was the fourth journal of about 10 that I scoured recording the demise of the last remaining female in the army. Quote, a woman belonging to the Pennsylvania troops was killed today by accident, a soldier carelessly snapping his musket, which proved to be loaded. This unfortunate accident is what killed Susanna Greer. Women were in camps, battles, and even ridiculous, insane marches like this one. And these women should also be talked about and known. And if you want to learn and hear about more amazing women during the revolution, go back and listen to episode 17, as in it, the entire show is dedicated to such women and learning about their amazing stories and fighting even, and all are inspiring no matter who you are. Aaron Burr was given permission to lead some men in the attack, which required ladders to scale the walls. He drilled his men and made sure he was well acquainted with the point of attack. Montgomery had to change some aspects of his plan when he found out that Stephen Singleton, a sergeant from Rhode Island, had defected. Montgomery assumed that Singleton provided the British with details of the plan. However, the overall objective of attacking the lower city stayed in place. The Americans initially wanted to launch the attack on December 27th, but the sky cleared and the moon came out, lighting up the entire area, which would have exposed all of their movements to the British. Arnold was promoted to Brigadier General on January 10th, 1776. And lastly, on June 18th, 
Benedict Arnold was the last American to leave Canada. Again, I hope you check out the show notes for this episode and enjoy the videos, links, and compilation of amazing resources that I've made available to you. I also provide links to books about the show's topic, and for this show, I have a couple amazing books that are a must-read that really focus on the march to Quebec, and the other one really focuses on the Battle of Quebec. One of these books goes into great detail about the march, which is astounding. Please consider doing a review of my podcast if you have a minute, as that is all the time it would take you. And if you want to help keep this podcast free, you can become a monthly supporter or make a one-time donation. Thanks for listening and hope that you tune in next time with us here at the Patriot Power Podcast. Make sure that you hit subscribe so you'll get notified when our new episodes are available for you. And we hope that you check out our websites, which include our show notes, links, documents, and more at PatriotPowerPodcast.com or ILoveGeorgeWashington.com. Until next time, hope that you and your family have a blessed week. And remember, be safe and tell a veteran thanks for their service.